I don't know about you ladies, but have you been in a Facebook group full of single or married women complaining about how the only thing men want and care about is sex? Are you like most women who think that this is true, that if you simply feed them and fuck them, everything's going to be good. If so, I've got something to share with you today to blow this limiting belief up. Men are way more complex than most of us give them credit for. And I am on a mission to help you see them as a complex and the intricate beings that they are and how limiting that the perpetuation of this narrative is for many men who indeed do care about your emotions, yours and theirs, and how it really is more than just sex for them as well. Also, you've likely heard me talk about the eight different types of female orgasms from episode 174 and the seven types from episode 15 before I knew and experienced the eighth for myself. But you've definitely never heard me talk about the different types of male orgasms. So if you're someone who doesn't know what you just don't know about pleasure, like most of us, then I want you to tune into the full episode. I know it's a little long, but Cam is an absolute rock star and an expert in the sexuality space for men, completely changing the way men experience their masculinity and sexuality. Cam hails from Australia, spending his college years in the US of A and having a lot of meaningless sex with some ladies back in his younger days. At just 19 years old, he found himself questioning his masculinity and struggling with performance anxiety that manifested as, you know, premature ejaculation, some erectile disappointment, and watching too much porn until he fractured his spine and he started doing Pilates, yoga, massage, breathwork, therapy, and meditation. And for the first time in his life, he started listening to his body, yay, and having massive breakthroughs around his own emotional intelligence and sexuality. He then went on to study psychology and to become a clinical sex therapist. He started exploring plant medicine, got ordained as a Buddhist monk, and eventually settled down in Australia again to do a degree in sexology, which led him to become a sex coach with a spiritual tantric flair for the past six-ish six years now. He's got a rocking Instagram account. You can go follow him at Cam Fraser that you should definitely follow to learn all things, sexuality and pleasure for men, as well as a podcast of his own men, sex and pleasure with Cam Fraser. In today's episode, you're going to learn the major myths around men's sexuality, such as the myth of arousal and erection, the myth that men are more sexual than women, the myth around men and the anal and prostate play making them gay, the myth that orgasm and ejaculation are the same, the myth that men are more visual and therefore need porn in their life, and the myth of the term sex drive. You're also going to learn the truth about testosterone and how it affects men's sexuality. You're going to learn a lot about resolving mismatched libido and relationships in this episode too. You're going to learn the erotic menu for your sex life and other things to do than penis and vagina sex. You're going to learn the three different types of male orgasm, the number one trick to separate orgasm from ejaculation, and how you as a woman can help lead your male partner into becoming multi-orgasmic himself. This is the Multi-Orgasmic Mama, the podcast for high-achieving moms to have sex worth putting the energy in for. I'm Tilly Storm, a holistic sex and intimacy coach, and it's my mission to help you want to want sex again, to have better orgasms, and to feel confident and sexy so you experience more pleasure in the bedroom and beyond. 
All right, Cam, tell us a little bit about you, what you do and why you do it. I'm just super passionate about like just opening up this lid on what we think of as masculinity and, and sexuality and the intersection between those two things and try and bring a little bit of the spirituality side of things in, the esoteric side of things, and then also the, the academic and research-based side of things as well because I think it's important to have a bit of a crossover there. Um, so yeah, that's me in a nutshell, as, uh, as much of a nutshell as I can put it in. I would love for you to tell me a little bit about some of the, the myths that your brand is built off of around masculinity. Share with us some of those things and what you, if you could tell a bunch of women and some men listening right now, like, this is totally inaccurate. Like, don't pigeonhole yourself into these stereotypes. What would that be? Yeah. Okay. So some major ones that I work with, um, or that I try and like debunk for want of a better word are, um, like the, one of the major ones is, um, around arousal non-concordance. So this idea that like an erection equals arousal and, um, you know, that isn't necessarily the case. So there, obviously there's an overlap there where arousal and erection happen, um, together and that's, you know, in alignment, but a, you know, a person with a penis or, you know, a guy, cause I work with cis men, you know, a guy can have an erection, but not be aroused just the same way that he can be aroused and not have an erection. The two don't always line up. And it's kind of similar to, um, you know, if you have a vulva um, and you get lubricated, if you have a vagina and you get lubricated, you can be aroused and not be lubricated and you can be, you know, producing lubrication, but not be very aroused. And so there's a misalignment there. And typically there's a bit more misalignment for women than there is for men, but um, there is still that, that non-concordance. So, um, and so like that seems like a pretty straightforward thing to kind of understand. But when you start to like extrapolate that to its extremes, I suppose, you know, one extreme is like the guys who are like really uh, turned on and like wanting to connect with their partner, wanting to be sexual and their partners really wanting to be sexual with them. And they're like in the heat of the moment, but they don't have an erection. And they're like, what the fuck's wrong with me? You know, something's, something's wrong with me or something's wrong with my partner. Maybe I don't like them. Maybe I am not turned on by them. Like, and they start to question all these things and there's a lot of anxiety induced by it. Um, that's like one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is, um, and this is a bit of a trigger warning for people is like when, um, you know, a guy gets sexually assaulted and he has an erection, right? He didn't consent to it. He didn't, he's not, definitely not aroused by it uh, subjectively, psychologically, but the body's having a physiological response of arousal. And, you know, and so, you know, some men that I've worked with have had an experience like this where they felt betrayed by their body because their body has an erection. And, you know, there's about 20% of guys that when they're sexually assaulted have also um, had an ejaculation as well, had an orgasm as part of their part of their assault, and so um, and so like there's you know, there's a story there that like oh well maybe he enjoyed it or maybe he you know, maybe it was an assault because his body had this response, mm -hmm. um, and so like it's really important to talk about that as well. So that's a major one, and it seems like very simple on the surface, but when we start to extrapolate it, it's it, you know we go into some pretty intense areas. Um, another one is that um like men are always supposed to be sexual right that men are with this kind of twofold the first is like that men are more sexual than women like that's a pretty strong narrative uh in in the west at least uh, and that men because they're more sexual than women are always sexual as well that, that guys are just ready to have sex at the drop of a hat and 
Sure, there are men out there like that. Um, I'm not saying that there aren't. But this idea that all men are supposed to have like a really high sex drive that's unyielding and unwavering and unrelenting and will always say yes to sex as well is um, is problematic for a bunch of reasons. The first is that like we know that there's plenty of women out there that have a higher sex drive than men or that want and desires. Uh, and so that causes issues obviously in a relationship if there's an expectation that the guy is supposed to have more, want to have sex more often than his female partner. Um, but then also like it causes um, causes some issues or it becomes problematic. Like if a guy starts to say no to sex or if he puts up a boundary and says like, oh, I'm actually not in the mood. Because um, a story comes up for him of being like, what's wrong with me? I don't want to have sex right now. And so um, you know, he might you know, cross his own boundary. And even though he didn't want to have sex, he might just do it anyway because he feels like that's expected of him. Um, or... He might escalate sex because uh, even though his partner and him might not necessarily be into it, he might think, well, this is expected of me to be sexual. So I guess I'm just going to keep on going here. And, you know, that's what that's where we're going to go. Um, or another story can pop up of like if he says no after she's initiated, then, um, uh, you know, very typical one is, oh, I, what are you gay? Like, is there something something wrong with you? And again, the the label of gay is, is used there as... Uh, kind of like not not as an insult in that kind of regard sometimes it is i suppose but it's seen as like a bad thing to be gay and again that's this kind of story of homophobia um which again is a big one for for a lot of guys that leads into another story around like pleasure like guys that are interested in prostate play or anal play or any type of pleasure that's outside of just their cock and balls are seen as weird or is seen as you know if it's anything to do with their ass that somehow that makes them gay for some reason you know even though that's not how sexual orientation or you know sexual behavior actually works um and so that's one i'm really passionate about you know talking about is like firstly there's nothing wrong with being gay so who fucking cares if they're if it did make you gay but secondly it doesn't so um so you know learn about that um so that's another big one uh then i mean there's heaps i, I can keep on going the, there's the, uh, the idea that like ejaculation and orgasm are the same but they're actually two separate physiological processes um i'm really passionate about like debunking that not only at that like the the client level or, or working with with people but also at like the sex therapy level as well because in sex therapy we still use this model of masters and johnson's human sexual response um which still conflates orgasm and ejaculation and there's not really any models out there that show the distinction between those two things so um i think that's really important to, to talk about and like learning how to have multiple orgasms and things like this but uh, that's a whole nother conversation. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's a, if people are really interested in like going deep into these, there's a fantastic book called Not Always in the Mood by a, a woman uh, who's a researcher in Canada called Sarah Hunter Murray. And she's got, um, yeah, it's fantastic. It's for, for heterosexual couples. And it's just like literally all the major myths about male sexuality uh, and how to navigate them with a partner. Um, she's a couples therapist and a couples researcher. Like another one is about porn. Like, you know, men are more visual and men need porn in their life and like it's, you know, integral to their sexuality. That's just not true as well. And this idea that men are more visual isn't, that's a myth as well. It's, you know, it's socially conditioned rather than it being, you know, a evolutionarily biological trait that men have. Like that's not a real thing. So um, yeah, there's heaps of them. There's heaps of them. And I just, yeah, I'm I'm passionate about like, calling them out and 
you know, offering up an alternative, maybe explaining where they come from. I think that's important for us to kind of realize a little bit is like, okay, why do we think that? Like, is there any truth to that? Maybe it's a stereotype for a reason. Um, and then kind of like pulling that apart and being like, well, here's actually a new story that you can tell yourself about male sexuality, about men. Um, cause I work with a lot of guys, of course, but a lot of these guys that I work with cause they're heterosexual, they have female partners. And so not only, uh, we kind of rewriting the stories for him, but then he by proxy of being in a relationship with her kind of does a bit of rewriting of her stories because we have the same stories about masculinity and sexuality. We aren't being taken to different classrooms anymore. I suppose I was when I was in high school for sex ed, I was taken into a different classroom to the girls. Um, but you know, we get the same stories. We, we get the same ideas. Like this is what men are supposed to be. This is what women are supposed to be. And those things are, are propagated by, by each of us. And so we, um, we both have a, a responsibility there to kind of check our stories and, and what we're, what expectations we're kind of placing on our partner. So, yeah. um, that was a bit of a rant, but there was a few things in there. Hopefully that kind of like lays the foundation for some conversations. Oh, totally. Yeah. I, I relate to so much of that, you know, and it only takes being in the dating world for a very short amount of time to realize how many of those myths are totally not even real or true. All right, ladies, let's dive into this myth that men are the ones that are supposed to initiate and women aren't sexual. Yeah. Okay. So the, the first thing is to acknowledge is that's a, like a massive story that we have in society, right? That like men are supposed to be the initiators are supposed to be the active participants in sex are supposed to be the ones that pursue sex and women are supposed to be the passive gatekeepers the ones that you know desire less sex and so like they're they're the ones that kind of say yes or no to his advances so that's a major story like that we first have to acknowledge so it requires a lot of unpacking and unlearning like i want to just you know preface that and say that just by listening to this conversation right now it's probably not going to undo all the conditioning that you've learned about that particular story because it's a big one um, so that's the first thing I wanted to say. The, the second thing is like, um, okay, so it's important to acknowledge then that like the, like, so I, I'll talk about the male sex drive and sex drive is a bit of a weird term cause it's kind of like made up. We just kind of made up this idea that sex drive is a thing when really it's just like sexuality and do you desire sex and do you have like an interest in it and things like that. There's no real like drive, I suppose, biologically speaking to be like to have sex a certain amount of times, like it's, yeah, it's an interesting thing. Um, but like men's desire for sex does fluctuate and, you know, oftentimes it gets conflated with like his testosterone levels. So like I will very commonly get a message from a guy on social media and say, Hey, I feel like something's wrong with me. I don't want sex as often as my partner does. I've gone and checked my testosterone levels. Like that's without a doubt, like all the time a guy will say, yeah, I've checked my testosterone levels and nothing's wrong. Um, because we conflate testosterone with quote unquote sex drive with libido. Um, now, while there is a correlation between those two things, uh, testosterone isn't the only thing that's responsible for how much you desire sex. For example, you know, we've got estradiol, there's dopamine, there's cortisol levels, there's um, prolactin, there's all these other different types of neurochemicals that you know, impact sex drive and, and, and your desire to have sex. Um, but if we're taking testosterone, like the way a lot of people do and saying it's the sole thing, that's the reason for people having, um, you know, a, a sex drive the way it is like testosterone fluctuates, right? And so it fluctuates on a daily basis. It's high in the morning. It's low in the evening. Testosterone fluctuates on a, um, like it has a, has a 
uh, rhythm, um, a 30-day cycle and a 40-day um, cycle has these these um, these rhythms. Uh, it has a seasonal rhythm as well, so it's really high in or statistically significantly high in winter and lower in summer. So when it's cooler, testosterone's higher. When it's hotter, testosterone's lower. Uh, so it's got the seasonal variation as well. Um, and so you know, if we, and then it declines progressively over the age of um, you know, twenty, it starts to go down progressively um, each decade. So you know, if we're saying that guys are supposed to have you know uh, unwavering, unyielding sex drive, and you know we're 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 saying that testosterone is responsible for sex drive, then that doesn't doesn't equivocate, right? Because testosterone has all these you know like humans do has all these cycles it's a cyclical um you know we're all cyclical beings at least in my opinion so you know acknowledging that is i think really important as well um to to kind of start accepting this new story or rewriting this new story that there are going to be fluctuations going to be times where he might be really desirous for sex and there's going to be other times where he's maybe not so much um there's also a story wrapped up in this as well that like um and i i get this from a lot of men that now that they're in a relationship, they should only want to have sex with their partner and not masturbate anymore. And all their sexual needs need to be fulfilled by their partner. Uh, and so this might be a similar story that some women have as well in a relationship. So hard. Um, especially, <laughs> right, yeah, right. That like their, their sexual needs can only be met by their male partner and maybe can't be met by themselves. Uh, and so when there's a discrepancy in in like libido, for example, when one's higher than the other, um, in terms of like their partners, there could be a conversation around like, well, I'm maybe not able to fulfill all those sexual needs that you have. Is there an opportunity there to explore that by yourself or for us to like find other avenues for doing that, that maybe don't involve as much involvement from the person with the lesser amount of desire. So, um, so there's a story there around self-pleasure within a relationship, which is important to deconstruct. Um, and then like, if we're talking about bridging that gap between you know, a person with a higher libido and a person with a lower libido, and this is true regardless of which gender um, has the higher and lower, but it's, you know, when I talk to couples about the way that they meet their sexual needs with one another, I use this analogy called the erotic menu. And the analogy is as follows, like when you're hungry, uh, you choose from a menu a meal to eat with your partner. So when you're horny, you choose with your partner from your erotic menu, a quote unquote meal to quote unquote eat with your partner. But for a lot of couples, the only meal that's on their erotic menu is penis and vagina sex, it's penetrative sex. Uh, and so that might be your favorite meal, right? That might be a, an amazing, fantastic meal. It might be, a, it's a pretty big meal, right? And And if you're, maybe not as hungry as your partner, then that big meal, or if even if it's just the only meal on the menu, might be not what you're looking for that evening, right? You might be hungry, but not that hungry, or you might be hungry, but you're in the mood for something else. And so, you know, when it comes to, to choosing something with your erotic menu, if there's only one thing on there, it can firstly get dull pretty quickly. It's like eating your favorite meal, f you know, for you know, when you actually are hungry, like it might be, and a great meal, right? I really love um, tiramisu, for example. But if I eat tiramisu every single meal time, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and every time I'm hungry, I'm gonna get sick and tired of tiramisu pretty quickly. Uh, and so there's like uh, an invitation here to add things to your erotic menu to you know 
if, if you're wanting to connect and, and meet each other's sexual de desires, what are some other things that are available to you that aren't necessarily penis and vagina, P and V sex? And so, you know, that requires some creativity, requires some yep. um, spontaneity as well, some flexibility, some, you know, just some inspiration as well a little bit. Um, <laughs> and so, and so I, I often talk to guys about like, you know, if they're, for example, not, um, if they're the, they're the partner with like the lower desire for sex or they, they can't quote unquote keep up with their female partner, I'll start to talk to them about, okay, what are some other ways that you can help get her sexual needs met that don't involve you having to rely on your cock? Because that's, you know, what a lot of, um, a lot of the pressure that a lot of men feel when it comes to sex comes down to the fact that like, oh God, I'm like going to have to use my my cock again or like you know it's maybe it's not reliable maybe they're having some erections issues and some there's performance anxiety there and so there's a lot a lot of guys feel a lot of pressure and anxiety and expectation for themselves to perform and whether they put that expectation and pressure on themselves or whether they kind of you know um surreptitiously feel it from their partner uh, there's still a lot of guys dealing with this pressure to perform um and because yeah and this is like a lot of this is interrelated, but it's because a lot of people, um, couples, men, women, just people in general, have this idea that like pleasure has to come from an erect penis, right? And that if you're if there's not if there's no erection, then sex can't happen, right? Or if there's an ejaculation, then sex has to finish. You know, like these like who who made those rules, right? That like if you know and, and that idea, by the way, is called phallocentrism, like that idea that if he's got an erection, then sex is good to go. If he doesn't, then, well, sex is off the table. Uh, if he's ejaculated, then that's the end of sex and we can't be sexual after that. Like that idea that sex is predicated upon what the penis can and can't do is, you know, is, is limiting for both parties. Um, so one of the strategies that I help couples kind of develop is like how to be sexual with one another that doesn't involve his penis, for example, because um, it can take a lot of pressure off of, this, what he might be feeling and so by doing that he can uh, typically what happens is because he feels less pressure to perform and and for his cock to do something um there's a bit more freedom for him to be like oh okay i can you know i can use a toy or i can use my fingers i can use my tongue i can be sexual and intimate in a bunch of different ways and it, f it frees up that desire to come out a little bit more as opposed to like him maybe not wanting to have as much sex because he's worried that he's going to get, you know, he's going to have trouble getting an erection or he's going to come too quickly or, or all those other resistances that might be blocking his desire for sex in the first place. So, um, so if you're a woman listening to this, that can also be quite helpful is like being a bit of a leader in that sense, I suppose, and being like, Hey, we can be sexual in other ways. It doesn't have to look like penetrative sex. Like it doesn't have to involve your cock. Let's explore some other things and keep that like lightheartedness, keep that playfulness, keep that like not so seriousness, I suppose, you know, um, my opinion is sex is supposed to be playful and fun and pleasurable. And I think you're supposed to laugh during sex as well. Like I don't think people are laughing enough during sex. So yeah, if you can, right. So if you can instill that, like, and if you can invite that into your, into your like relationship with your partner, um, and take that pressure off and make it a bit more fun and enjoyable for the two of you. Um, that's typically a, a strategy that I help especially the guys that I work with, I, I help them frame, you know, sexual leadership in that way is like kind of creating a space where you're leading by vulnerability. You're kind of leading by example and then helping invite your partner into that. The, um, the image that I kind of paint is like, you know, you're diving into a, a lake 
and um, you know, testing out the water and saying to your partner, hey, the water's fine, come on in, come and join me in here. Like you've t- taken the plunge and led by example, and then you're inviting your partner in to join you. Thank you, Cam, for that amazing breakdown of sexual myths for men and giving us so many new ways to think of men and their sexuality. Now, for those of us creatively challenged, what are other options that we can try when we have mismatched libidos, for example, and maybe something other than the plain old penis and vagina sex? Um, something that um, I, I wanted to share is like, this is just a simple strategy for people that are like having a, a difference in libido, for example, is like take an inventory of like your, what you think your libido is. So do this separately from your partner, but you know, suggest it as an idea on a scale of one to 10, where would you rate your own libido? And then on a scale of one to 10, where would you rate your partner's libido or like desire for sex? And then compare notes. Cause you might be surprised you're, you might rate yourself really, really high and your partner might rate yourself like somewhere in the middle range. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. Why is that? Is there maybe a, a miscommunication issue happening as well of like, um, I'm not picking up on the cues of my partner who wants to have more sex, right? Because again, because of this internalized story that um, that men are supposed to be the initiators of sex, a lot of guys aren't tuned in to cues from their female partner about this, that she wants sex, that she maybe is in the mood. Um, and uh, again, because there's a lot of shaming of women that are really desirous of sex and want to have sex, uh, they can be quite subtle with their cues as well. Um, even though they might think they're being quite overt with their cues, it might feel like they are because they're stepping into like, I'm actually in the mood for sex. I want to have sex. But because there's this internalization of like, you know, it's, it's bad, quote unquote, wrong to be a sexual woman. Um, a lot of guys aren't used to like picking up on that from their female partners and there might be some miscommunication there. So, um, so a conversation about like where you both think you are and, and whether there's any mismatches there might lead to a communication conversation about like, when I do this, that means I'm in the mood to have sex. And your partner might be like, oh shit, I didn't know that. And you're like, oh my God, I've been doing this for like three years. How did you not know that? Um, and it might be an opportunity to then go, all right, well, now that I know I actually do want to have sex more often, I just didn't realize that was when you were in the mood. So that can, that can facilitate like some light bulb moments for, for couples as well. Um, just talking about signals and, and those kind of desire discrepancies. I just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah. Oh, that's a great idea. I love that. Okay. Cool. Well, this is the multi-orgasmic model podcast. I was looking at those stats. I will tell you the number one episode is, well, actually it was deep throating techniques and how to give orgasmic pleasure. That's the number one episode. <laughs> uh, the second was the, the eight different types of female orgasm. Uh, nice. So yes, I always talk about, you know, I, I just like to educate women on what they don't even know is possible in their body. Um, mm. But I would love to hear you tell us a little bit about men's experiences of orgasm and how prostate orgasm is a thing. Uh, so I like to start by saying that, um, you know, neurologically speaking, men can have at minimum three different types of orgasms, right? And then that's just, we're using the nervous system as a barometer there. Then we can talk about the you know, muscular system and all these other, we're talking about energetic orgasms and all this other stuff, but like, just keep it basic. We'll start with the neurology. Um, We can orgasm through the pedendal nerve, which is the nerve that runs um, through the perineum, that space in between the genitals and the anus. It's connected to the sympathetic nerve system and it's responsible for ejaculation. So it's sometimes known as an ejaculatory orgasm. 
the next nerve uh, as part of these three you know, ways is the pelvic nerve. The pelvic nerve is innervated, um, well, not innervated, but it's like it's connected to the rectum and like the hips and the lower abdominal muscles. And um, so we can have an orgasm through like rim jobs, for example, and anal stimulation and through you know, massage of the general pelvic area. Uh, and then there's also the hypogastric nerve and the hypogastric nerve innervates the prostate. So it surrounds the prostate and the prostate is a small walnut sized gland just behind the bladder. Typically it's stimulated through anal penetration. And the beautiful thing about the hypogastric nerve in general uh, and prostate orgasms is that the uh, hypogastric nerve primarily carries parasympathetic fibers, which means it's part of the parasympathetic nervous system. So if you remember, I said ejaculation is you know part of the sympathetic nervous system. It's a sympathetic reflex, for example. Um, and what happens after an ejaculation is a lot of guys enter a refractory period, is that period of time after he comes where he loses his erection, doesn't really feel super aroused. He feels satiated, right? He feels like his, you know, his sexual desire goes away and um, it takes about 20 minutes for him to get excited and aroused and get an erection and be able to ejaculate again. Um, there's various reasons for that, but that's beyond the scope of what I'm talking about. Um, however, a hypogastric nerve that you know, um, innervates the, the prostate doesn't include an ejaculation because it bypasses that ejaculatory reflex. So you can have a prostate orgasm or a pelvic orgasm, um, depending on where you're stimulating, and um, completely miss that refractory period and so you can have another prostate orgasm and another one and another one until you're fed up with having them and you and then you and you want to stop uh, because it doesn't trigger the ejaculation reflex of course you can have then a blended orgasm which is like an ejaculatory orgasm with the prostate stimulation and so um, you can get this beautiful mix of the two because our sexual functioning is this beautiful blend between the parasympathetic and sympathetic branches of the nervous system um, but that's at minimum the three um, types of orgasms that you know, people with male biology can can have. Um, and I'm really uh, you know passionate about talking about prostate orgasms in particular, uh, just purely because there's a lot of story around it. Firstly, like what prostate stimulation means for guys, like does it turn them gay? That's no, that's not true. Um, there's no switch up there that you press that just changes your sexual identity. That doesn't. That's not how it works. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the simplest ways of becoming a multi-orgasmic man, for example, you know, there's, there's strategies out there, like, like Mantak Chia talks about where you've got to press and squeeze and like divert energy and move all things around and do all these like, you know, Taoist sexual practices. And you can do that for sure. You can do that. And I teach a lot of those practices. Um, I, there's some practices that I don't teach, which, um, I found to be detrimental, like the million dollar point technique where you're pressing up into the perineum, that's not a very useful strategy. It's, it does more damage than it does good. Um, but if you're wanting to learn simply how to become multi-orgasmic, it's learn how to have a prostate orgasm. And typically what I do with my clients, the ones that are specifically looking to learn how to become multi-orgasmic is um, I'll encourage them to explore their prostate because once they have a prostate orgasm that doesn't involve a refractory period, that experience clicks for them and their body goes, oh, this is a thing I can do now, as opposed to like them trying and trying and practicing and practicing and trying to have like a non-ejaculatory orgasm by doing all the practices and techniques and squeezes and things like that. 
which they can eventually do. But what I find is that all that stuff that they're doing for, you know, for that particular type of non-ejaculatory orgasm becomes a lot easier once their body has that light bulb moment of being like, oh, this is something that I can do. Um, and typically the thing that gets them over the line is that prostate orgasm. And then once they've had that, the kind of Pandora's box has been opened, so to speak. And then they go back and do these other practices and they realize that they're a lot more successful with those practices at learning how to separate ejaculation and orgasm um, because their body has that like, almost like muscle memory, that trigger to be like, oh, okay, I can do this now. Like, you know, and it, and it um, lends itself a lot more easily. So um, that's important to recognize as well. I said this before that ejaculation and orgasm are two separate physiological processes. So you can ejaculate and have an orgasm um, uh, together at the same time, or you can ejaculate without an orgasm. So a non-orgasmic ejaculation, which I don't think gets talked about enough. Um, you know, guys that have an ejaculation, but there's actually no heightened peak state of pleasure associated with it um typically just like dribbles out as well uh, but then on the other hand hand and what people are really interested in is the um non-ejaculatory orgasm so an orgasm that doesn't involve an ejaculation uh, and so uh, some strategies for doing that is like the most simplest way i can put this is you know think about what you or your partner does when they ejaculate right so take an inventory of like the physical manifestations of an ejaculation what are some of those things well they're you know i've spoken to a lot of guys about the way that they come and some things that are very common is they'll hold their breath or they'll breathe quite quickly uh, or they'll breathe up into their chest quite shallowly uh, they'll their heart rate goes up because of that uh, their temperature goes up because of that maybe they're squeezing and they're pushing and they're like trying to force that ejaculation out right and there's this like holding sensation this pushing and squeezing sensation this tension that's built up it's known as myotonia that that involuntary tension in the body um there's the the pulsing the rhythmic pulsing squeezing as well um there's uh sometimes guys will close their eyes and there's there's all these things so you can take an inventory of all the things that you do when you ejaculate and then the little thought experiment i have here is like okay take all those things take them out of the erotic context and apply them to a guy who was just walking down the street, right? You saw a guy all of a sudden just like tense up, freeze up, hold his breath, like, you know, tightening, elevated heart rate, elevated temperature, like squeezing and holding. You think that guy's having an anxiety attack, you know, like it's a pretty anxiety inducing thing to see as well. Um, and so I often say that ejaculation is really a pleasurable anxiety attack. Yeah. Uh, and the reason the reason why is because it's a really strong trigger for that sympathetic nervous system, right? So sympathetic nervous system for people that are familiar is the fight or flight response, or um, you know, it's it's an abbreviation for the five Fs, which is to feed, to fuck, to flee, to fight, and to um, there's one one more in there uh, to freeze. Uh, and the um, and so the, the sympathetic nervous system gets really triggered when ejaculation happens. So if you're trying to have a orgasm that doesn't involve an ejaculation, very simply put, do the opposite of everything that you do when you ejaculate. Mm -hmm. So instead of holding your breath and elevating the breath up into the chest and you know, squeezing and holding and breathing, do the opposite of all that. So slow the breath down as much as you can. Breathe down into your diaphragm, down into your belly, right down into your hara and um, relax as much as possible. So let go of that tension that you're holding on to. Try not to push and to squeeze but to let go and surrender. Um, 
you know, lower, you know, slow the heart rate down, lower the temperature, you know, take, thing, take your time rather than trying to build and build and build to get to this end goal. Try and expand and expand and expand and trying to hold more of that, you know, sexual energy that you might be feeling or more of that arousal, more of that pleasure, try and hold it rather than trying to do something with it, which is oftentimes what leads to an ejaculation. So one of the reasons why as guys, we um, get to the point of ejaculation relatively quickly is because our body is like a sponge and just like a sponge soaks up water, our body soaks up arousal really, or it soaks up tension. Yeah? And, and tension is not a bad thing. Nick, um, you know, who's my teacher, is a structural engineer. And so he loves this idea of tension not being a bad thing because you need tension, right? Tension is necessary for buildings to stay upright. Uh, and so we can think of like sexual tension being a good thing, right? It creates that spark and that arousal and that chemistry and that pleasure. But our body's really good at soaking up all types of tension, not just the quote unquote good tension, like sexual tension. It's good at soaking up like anxiety and stress and you know tension from social media and tension from work and all this other stuff. Uh, and so our body, like a sponge, when it's waterlogged, our body is like tension logged, right? Because it's from day to day, we're living in this like sympathetic dominance state where we're constantly you know, looking at notifications and you know, got deadlines and we're in a global pandemic. So we're, there's kind of stress coming at us from, from everywhere. And so our body is really good at just like holding onto that. And then when we get into a sexual space or a sexual environment with our partner, or even by ourselves, we're trying to, you know, from that place of being tension logged, we're trying to pour some more tension on top of that. We're trying to pour some more sexual tension on top of the already existing tension that's there. And what happens when we try and pour more water onto a sponge that's waterlogged? The sponge leaks. And this is exactly the same for, um, for like people that ejaculate is like they get to their capacity real quickly because their body's already in this state of like arousal and arousal not necessarily being explicitly sexual arousal, but arousal being like a state of sympathetic dominance, right? In their, in their body. Uh, and so, you know, what do you do if you want to pour lots of water onto a sponge? You wring it out first, right? Like you you empty all of that existing water there, all that stagnant water. So you got to do the same thing with your body is release as much tension as possible. Like bring yourself down to a baseline of arousal to begin with, right? Physiological arousal um, by doing some slow breathing, by doing some fucking yoga, by doing some breath work, by doing whatever it is that allows you to relax. Could be a massage before you start to build that tension back up before you start to build all that really beautiful sexual tension back up and all that pleasure and all that arousal that feels really erotic. And, you know, within that as well, do that as slowly as you can, right? So really pay attention to those levels of arousal because a lot of guys go from zero to 10 like that. And um, they don't notice all those really beautiful steps in between. They don't know what it's like to simmer at like a seven or an eight and to stay in that really beautiful you know mellowed but like erotic state for a long time uh, and so one of the practices i give to the guys that i work with is like masturbate for 20 minutes or self-pleasure for 20 minutes um but try and keep yourself like turning over at like an eight for a good 10 minutes right and it might, might they might have to start at like one minute because it's like really difficult for them but then build it up to three minutes and then five minutes and then 10 minutes and then 20 minutes and see if you can hold yourself in that state for a long period of time um it's one of the practices of edging uh, as opposed to the other practice which is build up as close as you can to the edge and then stop 
and then lower it back down and then build up again and then stop and lower it back down. Um, you know, that's the other alternative. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that's a strategy. If you're wanting to learn how to become, or if you, or even if you're a partner, your partner, you know, if you're a woman and your, your male partner is wanting to learn how to like learn how to have different orgasms and different sexual experiences, you can help lead him in that by, um, going, Hey, let's, let's make a decision not to ejaculate today. Let's just explore your pleasure and like see what else there is there and give me feedback where you're at. Like how close are you to ejaculating? And once you kind of invite that communication, that feedback, you can say, all right, you know, he can, he say, I'm getting to a nine, I'm getting to a 10, I'm getting pretty close. Okay, cool. We're going to pull back. We're going to stop directly stimulating your cock, which is often how ejaculation comes about is through direct penile stimulation um, and start like, you know, keeping that pleasure going, but not as intensely. So maybe, you know, stimulating around his genitals, maybe the thighs, maybe the uh, lower abdomen, maybe even like his bum if he's into it, um, or his nipples, like a lot of guys are into nipples that just have never had them played with, so they don't really know, um, or just any other area that feels pleasurable for him because it keeps the pleasure there, but it doesn't directly stimulate him to the point to ejaculation. So um, and what what sometimes happens is if you're doing that, that ticking over of pleasure that isn't involving his genitals, firstly, experientially kind of creates new stories of like, oh, I don't need my penis to be involved in order to experience pleasure because that's a really big story for a lot of guys. Um, and it, that's really limiting for a lot of couples. Uh, but it also what can sometimes happen is you have a bit of a happy accident where like that pleasure will kind of tick over and into him having like almost like a full body experience of orgasm because you're involving other areas of his body and he's already in that heightened state of arousal. And so the, the body kind of goes into an orgasmic response, but doesn't involve an ejaculation. And, um, and a lot of guys go, what the fuck just happened? Right. It's oftentimes a very, like, like I said, a happy accident. They go, they go, Oh, that was new and weird and interesting. And I don't like, I'm still erect, like what the hell is going on? And so it ends up being this like really beautiful experience that you as a female partner can help your, your male partner have. Wow. So many great tips there, not only for the men listening to this, but also for you ladies who have a male partner, so you can help them become multi-orgasmic too. Any last tips for us, Cam? My cornerstone piece of advice is just like, be curious. Like your body is so much more capable than you think it is at experiencing a multitude of different types of pleasure. So just like have that curiosity, have that playfulness, like turn things into fun little games and experimentations with your partner and just lean into that. Like there's yeah, sex is supposed to be fun. Have a laugh. Don't take yourself too seriously. Um, and that's a, a pretty good cornerstone to build a sex life on, I think, anyway. Amazing. Now, ladies and gentlemen, don't forget to go follow Cam on Instagram at the Cam Fraser. Sorry, it has a the in it. And take a listen to his podcast, Men, Sex, and Pleasure as well. Thanks so much for joining this amazing conversation, and we will see you next week. Chances are, if you hear my voice right now, you might be a woman who struggles with lack of libido or desire, doesn't find sex that fulfilling or satisfying, or that's so busy and in your head that it's really challenging to drop in and actually enjoy sex when it happens. Yes, this podcast is here to help you with that. In each episode, I will be sharing everything I know to help you experience more pleasure in your sex life. But Let's face it, simply obtaining more information isn't going to change anything about your sex life. The thing is, being a high-achieving mom who's already in her head a lot and is strapped for time and energy, more information is not what you need, sweetheart. Alternatively, 
learning to rewire your body and your brain so you can get out of your head, be in your body and enjoy yourself is required. If you're really serious and committed to doing the embodiment practices, the somatic and the nervous system reprogramming, so you can experience epic sex in the bedroom and beyond, then I invite you to consider my Centrally Embodied Woman program. This is my signature program to teach and to coach high achieving moms like you. And it's how over 70 women have experienced a massive increase in their sexual desire and pleasure in the bedroom and beyond in less than four months. Through the program, you'll get deep, intimate coaching from me for 16 weeks, where I'll be able to personally guide you through your specific sex life and relationship struggles. And you'll also instantly join a sisterhood of other high-level women going through the same things to support you on the journey. On top of that, in addition to all of the coaching, the community, the accountability, the teachings, and the audio-guided embodiment practices and meditations, when you join the Centrally Embodied Woman program, you'll get lifetime access to our member library with new bonus content that we're continually adding in. And by the way, the program does help you to become a multi-orgasmic mama too. So yes, you can rely on just the information I share with you here. And yes, you may get the pleasure education you never got growing up. You may grow the ovaries enough to break the ice with your partner and have a meaningful conversation about your sex life, or you could take the shortcut and get the support you're going to need right off the bat. So if you're ready to commit to doing what it takes to have epic sex and pleasure in the next four months, then click the link in the show notes and fill out an application for the Centrally Embodied Woman program, and you'll be on your way to joining my magical world of multi-orgasmic motherhood and fast-tracking your journey to a thriving sex life and relationship today. Once again, hit the link in the show notes to apply for the Centrally Embodied Woman, and I'll see you there in the program.